Well, I think we're going to start on time. Um, welcome to the Getting the Food in Order workshop. My name is Julie. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator and speaker along with Nanette at this meeting. Okay. Uh, before we begin, we ask that you please turn off your cell phones. Okay, and uh, the workshop is being taped. There's a sheet here, I believe, that you sign off on if you're going to share. Um, all opinions expressed by those who share are our own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format of this session is a reading, two speakers, ask it basket, questions, and sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have uh, for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from Voices of Recovery, page 326. Okay, 326. This is for November 21st. What we needed now was a way of being abstinent over the long haul and living sanely through good times and bad. The Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous, page 21. That's the quote. When I arrived at the doors of OA, food was my master. In order to be released from its grip, I committed my food to a sponsor daily and abstained from specific foods, eating behaviors, situations, and people who were known triggers. I also attended numerous meetings. Although necessary, these actions put me at the opposite end of the food obsession. If abstinence is to bring about a sane, useful way of life, I must have a plan that I can live with forever. The plan must be flexible when the situation warrants, allowing me to commit my food or not, go to places I had avoided, and to eat some foods I had relinquished. Once abstinence has become a habit, these things are all possible. If I find myself on unsteady ground, I must once again take the actions that worked in the beginning. Today, by God's grace, I have balance in my life and live in peaceful coexistence with food. It says that um, I'm now going to talk for 20 to 25 minutes. And who's the timer so I'll know where to look? I'm sorry, raise your hand again. Timer? Okay. Great. Give me a give me a twenty, and then I'll wrap it up at five or something. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, um, I'm Julie. I'm a compulsive overeater, and um, this isn't ringing or too loud or anything, right? Okay. Okay. I'm I'm going to hi, and I'm going to pass around pictures. Uh, some of these are what it used to be like, like before and early in program. Um, a lot of times I'm in some kind of costume because I don't think you're going to notice the 60, 70 after extra pounds if I am. Uh, summer where I gained all my weight back, and then I have a couple of nice vacation shots and a cartoon I really like and a picture of a friend's dog in the back. Okay, so there they are. Okay, so um, the first thing I, okay, focus. I'm going to try and share a little bit about what it used to be like. But I have to tell you that uh, when I read the topic, getting the food in order, I thought, oh, my God, you know, if I could do that, I wouldn't come here. 
you know? So um, anyway, and I also disagreed with some of what was in here. <laughs> but you know, that's okay. All right, so I like what it says, that these are my opinions and my experience. Um, and if any of it upsets you, don't worry about it. I'll probably change my mind next week. So uh, you don't have to feel, you know. And the other thing as I'm walking to this, I have to just tell you that um, I'm very humbled by this experience in that I know, I know that I am simply a garden variety compulsive overeater who is helpless, hopeless, and pitiful in the face of food. I am someone who doesn't bathe or shower when I eat. I am someone who will spend money I don't have and steal yours. To eat. I am someone that will lie to anybody to eat. I am someone who, um, as I was walking over here, I realized that I'm wearing clean clothes. I've had a shower, and my clothes fit, and there's not a safety pin holding anything together. That's all new for me. Okay? And I don't take that. Sometimes I take it for granted, but when this is why I come to conventions so that I don't take it for granted, okay? I know that the only reason why I'm standing up here is because, by the grace of God, I still have a job, and I could afford to come, okay? And I checked, yes, I would be willing to share. And I know that this is an honor and a privilege, and I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm here to share with you what the program has done for me and what the disease has done to me, okay? So... Um, the real quick, I used to say the Reader's Digest version, and then I realized I am at an age where there are many people who have never even read a Reader's Digest, and I should quit saying that. Okay, so the um, Twitter version of uh, what's going on is, um, you know, bottom line, we can put it this way, fat baby, obese baby, obese baby, uh, fat little kid. Fat older kid, I had a brief shining moment before puberty where I actually was thin without trying. Um, oh, well. And then that ended quickly. And from then on, uh, it's been nothing but diets, okay? Diets without much success. Diets where I lost weight and gained it all back and more. And that's the story of my life, okay? Um, I, my dieting started at the age of seven. Okay, my family's always been really concerned about weight. We've always been obese, but we've been concerned about it. And, um, and so it was always, you know, the latest diet. And summer was the time to go on the diets and, and all that stuff. And I remember going to the beach with my aunt who was drinking Metrical and Sego. And I remember trying that stuff. And, I'm, I mean, I remember Tab without the NutraSweet and Fresca. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then eating the dried out chicken breast, you know, that had been broiled with no skin and which was like eating the bottom of your shoe sole. And so um, I tried a lot of diets. I'm also five times flunk out of a very successful uh, commercial weight loss program that has helped a lot of people. But that's an outside issue. It didn't work for me. And it didn't work for me because I'm a compulsive overeater and couldn't, I didn't have the steps to go with it. So I just had the me and uh, oh yeah. So anyway, I got to Overeaters Anonymous twice. The first time I came because I had been to Africa, gotten dysentery, and lost a lot of weight. When you're traveling this, through the Sahara and there's nothing to eat, hey, you know, I was a basket case. But, you know, other people were picturing water. I was picturing Taco Bell, okay? So 
But when I got back to civilization, I knew it was only a matter of time. So I went to OA. I lasted about six weeks. And then um, I began compulsively overeating at a dinner where people were drinking and didn't eat till 10, no, 8 o'clock. I had had lunch at noon. Eight hours on four ounces of chicken, a, a cup of carrots, and a handful of grapes. Ain't going to cut it. So I had four abstinent dinners in a row and then was off and, you know, to, you know, the track once more. And so I didn't know in this program that you could start over. It wasn't until coming back the second time, having gained all my weight back again, which I should mention, that my top weight has been 200 pounds and my bottom weight is 98 pounds. So I can identify with anybody. Um, a 100-pounder, a bulimic, or an anorexic, I've been all those things. I've visited all those places. And every single one of them um, has brought me to the despair of suicide. I haven't done it, only because I have just enough religious training to say, well, I don't know if there's a hell, but I don't think I want to find out. And then I came here and found out I've already been there. <laughs> but the neat thing, one of my favorite quotes in life is uh, from, um, oh, God, now I can't remember his name, Spanish, Spanish artist, Goya, who said, it's good to have friends in hell. And so it's like, you know, when you have, you might be going, and I found that to be true, in program when life has gotten really bad and it feels like I'm going through hell, I can go through it as long as I have friends. I don't have to move in furniture and live there. So, okay, about getting, about getting the food in our, anyway, I came back to program, I got a sponsor who scared me, and I basically did what they said in here. I um, began calling in my food and weight and measuring, and that, for some people, that is just a killer. For me, it was a lifesaver. It was a lifesaver. I didn't know how to eat. They, it gave me boundaries. It gave me something to go by. And so, to this day, I still weigh and measure my food. Because when I found out that a four-ounce serving of protein is actually about the size of a deck of cards, I mean, that just makes me want to kill myself. That's it? You're ki I mean, really, you're kidding, right? It's like, no. That's it, and it's like, oh, for Christ's sake. So anyway, I still weigh and measure my food. Uh, I still haven't called in in lately, but I called it in for a ton of years. And when things are screwy, I still write it down or call my sponsor, okay? Um, so those things have saved my life. So it says in here, my understanding about, quote, getting the food in order is um, I need a plan of eating. I need to know what abstinence is for me, which, according to the literature, is the action of staying, of staying from all foods and eating behaviors that causes problems. So um, when I came in the first time, I had a very, very, very strict way of eating. I went pretty much into anorexia where I was, like, eating almost nothing. And because I just thought if I could get thin enough, I'd feel like a person who was working the steps belt. <laughs> <laughs> well, those. Anyway, um, I didn't work all the steps. Uh, I got to four and couldn't figure it out. It's in English, but it just was beyond me. So I just kept getting thinner, hoping I'd recover. And I, my gods became a food scale and uh, dignity of choice. I think it was plan number three. And uh, I went to an OA retreat and began compulsively overeating because I didn't have a food scale. And I put on 16 pounds in six days. And I went from 98 to 200 in less than three months. And I did this down here in Southern California where the temperatures are over 100 during June, July, and August. And it, for the next two and a half years, I couldn't get abstinent. I kept coming to meetings because this is the only time I wouldn't be eating. 
was in a meeting. I didn't have that much guts. So uh, I would just, I would eat before the meeting, I'd eat after the meeting, I'd eat around the clock. And for two and a half years, I came and I probably would have enough 30-day chips to circle the room. And uh, I can't tell you, I can't, I mean, I can't explain a miracle. All I can tell you is I kept coming back and I kept working with a sponsor and I kept trying to abstain. And then one day it wasn't an OA meeting, it was an AA meeting because I was too ashamed to go to an OA meeting, having eaten yet again. And for some reason, I could hear somebody. You know, I heard in that program a long time ago, I'm glad I didn't commit suicide because I would have been killing the wrong person. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was trying to hurt the wrong person and that I really didn't have to kill me. It was okay that I live. And when I started abstaining, it was basically... Oh, not, oh, God, because at that point, God had very little credibility with me. It was just to whom it may concern. Um, I don't know if I can abstain or not, but I'm going to eat this breakfast. And then you eat it and you feel like you could eat eight more because this is ridiculous. You can live on that. And then I would go to work and I'd say, well, hell with it. I'm binging at lunch. And then I would eat my abstinent lunch, smoke a cigarette in about three seconds, and then say, okay, I have every reason in the world to abstain, but the hell with it. I'm binging at uh, dinner. And then I would go home and just say, please help me to just eat. You eat your abstinent dinner crying because you just so don't want to be eating broccoli because it's like, no, I really want pizza. This is, this is horrible. And my sponsor, I called her and she won't let me. And so I would eat it, and then I would go to a meeting like Joan of Arc, you know, just on the cross, you know. But you have to go because you're the stupid coffee person, and you've got to make coffee for all these jerks, you know, and God, and if they only knew how I really felt. And then I would go to the meeting, and I'd say, okay, I'm binging after the meeting. And then I would hear something that would make me laugh in spite of myself. I would just get that little teeny taste of hope, just enough to get me home, to say, just let me go to bed. I've gone to bed at 6 o'clock p.m. just to shut it off. Okay? That was about nine months' worth of that. There were days when I had to spend it in the company of my sponsor, or I would eat. I sometimes had to go to four meetings to keep from eating. I don't know that I got the food in order. (laughs) I was just trying to survive. I was trying to live. And I felt like I was clawing my way up a sand pit that I had slid down so many times back into hell that I just didn't know if I could. If from I did not have any trust in myself whatsoever. But the one thing I did have trust in was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Overhears Anonymous. You people gave me hope at each meeting and... My sponsor told me what to do, and being she had five years and I had five seconds, I did what she said. That was the bottom line. Um, it says here that abstain from specific foods and eating behaviors. Um, when I quit smoking, I put on 20 pounds abstinently. This did not please me. And it was really hard. And part of the truth I had to come clean about was, I thought I was pretty hip-looking cool when I was smoking. I could go all day on diet sodas and cigarettes and sugarless stuff and eat, you know, eat my meal. But, oh, if I skip lunch, oh, well, you know. And then I found out I'm not skipping lunch. (laughs) 
no more. And um, and I gained like 20 pounds, and I had to find out, okay, well, what can I eat, what can't I eat? Because I can't abstain protein, vegetables, fruit, weight and measured anymore. I can't do it. And so I started with um, working with a sponsor who could eat and was eat anything. I mean, she could have a cracker. She could have whatever she wanted. And But she ate it weighed and measured, and she was very thoughtful about her food. And she helped me find what I could and couldn't do. Because I'd call in and say, I don't understand why I'm still gaining weight. You know, I'm eating eggs, toast, and, and a piece of fruit for breakfast. I neglected to say how many eggs. I neglected to say how much butter I was using, blah, blah, blah. Okay? So getting the food in order that being honest took time for me. Uh, I went up, I went from like, I went up to 130, 100, almost 140. And then I started slowly coming back down. So I can't tell you that I came in, lost all my weight, and that was it. Where it says, you know, we have to find a food plan we can live with forever. I need to find a food plan I can live with today. Okay? Because I, I don't know about forever. I know about today. Okay? And I have, I have to find something I can, I can live with, as she says, or you will surely find something you can die with. And I don't want that. Okay? So it's been over time. I had to find out that uh, I can't eat crackers. I used to eat crackers. That was fine. But then when the crackers started expanding, I know it's wrong when I eat cra- 10 crackers. Seems like a normal amount. Okay, fine. The next day, I want to have crackers at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, there's a problem. The next day, I just want to eat crackers and nothing else. When I only want a single food for a meal, yeah, okay, so I had to find that out. My abstinence is basically that uh, I eat meals. I don't eat sugar in the form of cakes, cookies, candies, and I don't binge. Those are foods and eating behaviors I stay away from. Now, let me tell you, folks, there's a whole lot of stuff I don't eat anymore. The road's gotten real narrow. When I turned 30, I started getting migraine headaches, and the doctor gave me a list, half of which what was already on my food plan, and I was practically at his desk on my knees going, please don't take Italian sausage from me. You know, I had to let go of a lot of stuff, okay? And... um and so, oh, there went, you know, some stuff I can eat. But I, you know, I'm not one of those people that can balance their weight with exercise very well. I exercise because it keeps me healthy, and I like the way my body looks when I exercise. But when I say exercise, I mean I walk about 30 minutes before work about four days a week. And sometimes I'll do a sit-up or two or a knee bend. But basically, I would rather stick hot needles in my eyes than exercise. I like, I like a woman in another program who says, when I feel the urge to exercise, I lie down until the urge goes away. Um, it says it says here that um, it, a sane and useful way of living, okay, and that we'll be able to do things we didn't do before, okay? My, I've come full circle with a lot of that, okay? First I couldn't eat crackers, then I could eat crackers, now I can't eat crackers, okay. I find that as long as some things are in place, I seem to be okay. Am I calling the sponsor regularly and often? Am I attending meetings regularly and often? Am I sponsoring people? Am I being of service somewhere? Am I working the steps? Am I praying and meditating to something, anything, and whatever it is? If I'm doing all those things, 
and my food gets a little wonky, it doesn't go too far because I'm in the heart of the program. I'm, I'm there. I'm reading the literature. I am, I am doing everything I can. I like a guy who's, see, I don't have anything new to tell you folks. It's all what I've heard. But you know what? I just soaked it up like water on desert. Okay, because if I knew how to live, I wouldn't be here, you know? Okay? I got things to do, like tea. So, but he said, I don't know if it's meetings, sponsorship, service. You know, I don't know if it's the reading that I do. I don't know. I don't know if it's the meetings. I don't know if it's prayer and meditation. I don't know what keeps me sober. So I'm doing all of it because I don't know which one does it. Okay. So um, in here it also says that um, you know we can go places that we once didn't use, you know used to not go. I'm sorry, but I don't hang out in Seven um, Eleven a lot. I don't. I don't walk into Winchell's just to see if everything's okay. You know, uh, I don't go down aisles in the market because I can. I still consider them the gates of insanity or death. Dance. In fact, I love it when I have to go, where is your candy aisle? I just think that's hysterical. Every once in a while, you know, there is a cause to buy that. So I need to tell you this, that um, I have 23 years of abstinence, okay? But, yeah, and that's, you know, and I understand and you understand that you are applauding the program because it's not, it's, you know. Um, but here's my experience lately. Okay, after 23 years, I'd like to tell you that I can go to a potluck without fear. After 23 years, I can, I'd like to be able to tell you that I can go to a party and not worry. Those places are cunning, babbling, and powerful for me. I really don't know how to do them still. Uh, when I go to a recent experience, okay, I knew a potluck was coming. I hate potlucks. Um, I am one of those people that when people say, let's eat family style, I just want to throw up my hands and say, count me out. Because if it's on the table, it's mine. You know, I mean, I went to dinner with this lady one time, and she was with 12-step people. She didn't know what she was in for. And it was one of those rotating circle things, you know, that spins. She never ate the entire night. We kept that supper spinning. And, I mean, the food never made it over to her. We just kept going back and forth and back. And then finally she said, could I try some of that? And I looked at her like, no. You know, I mean, I hate it when people say, let's all share. And I feel like going, no, you know, I, this is mine. Um, so I don't do well with that. So when there's a whole table of food, it's difficult. So the first time I made a plan, I said, okay, I'm bringing my own food. So I brought my own food, and I ate it, and that worked out fine. But then, thank you, I didn't bring my own fruit. Oh, thanks. Oh, would somebody pass this basket, basket please? Um, thank you. Uh, anyway, I brought my own I, – I brought. I didn't bring fruit, so I had what you would call a healthy portion of fruit. It was less than half a watermelon, but – Okay. The second time, I had my own dinner packed, but I left in a rush from work because I was taking someone with me to this bye-bye dinner, and I forgot my dinner. I had packed it, and it was at home, and I thought, oh, Christ. Fortunately, the people I work with are normal, and they're ill. They actually serve things like grilled vegetables and chicken. And I feel like going, what, no casseroles? What are you people wrong with you? So anyway, I had grilled chicken, and God took care of me. So it's like... Even though I have deficiencies, like I don't do potlucks well, I don't do buffet well, okay? I um, I have a higher power that takes care of me in times like that. Like one time I was walking out of my kitchen with a meal I knew was 
It wasn't exactly off my food plan, but let's just say it was heading down the wrong road. And uh, there's not a breeze, no open window, and as I walk past my refrigerator, a piece of paper floats down off it and lands literally right on top of my plate. And it was entitled Dignity of Choice. And I thought, F. And I had to go back in and change my lunch. You know, so I have to tell you that what's done it for me has been the 12 steps of ovaries. How's the food's gotten in order? I have a plan of eating. I have a sponsor. I have meetings. One thing doesn't do it. I work steps. And the, and the other best part is when you sponsor people, because it's real hard to tell someone, well, you just don't eat no matter what. And then you think, oh, really, Julie? And it's like, yeah, I just, I can't tell you the amount of times that talking to someone else has saved my life. I'm going to end with this. I was at a restaurant where, and they don't have it anymore, and I'm grateful. It was in Beverly Hills called Big Ed the Bevex Diner. Okay, I'm going to say this. I don't care. Chili cheese fries. Need I say more? Okay, the size of Mount Olympus. So I go in there, and I've decided at the door, F this, I'm having chili cheese fries. It's not that they're not on my abstinence list. It's just that, you know, if I want to, like, my sponsor has this unnerving way of saying, if you want to weigh less, eat less. And I feel like there's got to be more to it than that. So I go in there, and I'm thinking, I'm going to order. I know what I'm going to order. Son of a gun. I go in the bathroom. And I'm in the handicap stall, which is appropriate for me. And I'm looking up at the ceiling going, you know and I know, I'm going to order chili cheese fries. I don't want to, but I'm going to. I'd like not to, but I don't see how I'm not. And then I walked out of there. Of course, I had a piece of toilet paper on the bottom of my heel. So I get out. <laughs> I'm in the restaurant. I sit down. And then one of those people roller skates up to the table all perky and happy and says, what will you have? And out of my mouth flew, I'll have the taco salad. And I was like, I'd like to tell you that God graced me with a delicious taco salad. It sucked. <laughs> and the chili cheese fries looked really good. But when I left, I was grateful instead of regretful. And I'll take that any day of the week and twice on Sunday. So am I done? Is this it? A minute. A minute. Okay. Two minutes. Okay, great. So in two minutes' time, I just want to say this, that what it says here, what we needed was a way of being abstinent over the long haul and living sanely through good times and bad. My abstinence, this plan of eating, sponsorship, steps. I took care of my mother with Alzheimer's for five and a half years, and she lived with us. And if you've ever been around a person with dementia, you know at some point you're looking for a gun, either to use on you or them. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was to watch my mother die by millimeters. Okay? And I did not have to compulsively overeat through that. And people would call me and say, who are sponsees, I'm sorry if I'm bothering you. And I would say, you're not bothering me. You're saving my life. Okay? So the only reason I got through that is we do not do this alone. I had was holding one... I had a sponsor on each hand, and I had a circle of people in this fellowship and other fellowships who walked us through one of the hardest times in my life a day at a time, and I did not have to come out of there eating my brains out. I could be present for the whole 
thing and I got to be there when she passed and it was peaceful and I was done and it was okay and I didn't regret anything I said or didn't say. My husband and I were both surprised when we discovered morphine lying around that we hadn't known was there. It was like, oh man, <laughs> that was here and we didn't know about it. But that was another program. So anyway, um, thank you all. Okay, and it is my great, great, great privilege to announce our next speaker, Nanette from West Hollywood. My name is Nanette. I'm a compulsive overeater. <laughs> and honestly, I am, Julie's talk was so fabulous, I feel definitely intimidated. <laughs> but what the program's taught me is that I share anyway, I share intimidated. So I came to OA 30-some years ago, 1975, and um, it took me... Basically, I came here to lose some weight so I would catch a man who, and he would fix me. But first, I'd get my food and body in order. And I went to maybe two or three meetings a, a week. And after meetings, I would eat enormous amounts of food to get rid of the feeling of having been at a meeting. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but I always ate for relief. And... Um, I liked OA from the very first meeting. I identified and it was a place I could go. And um, I, was, I didn't get abstinent for eight years. And I was abstinent eight times in eight years. And it, the first seven abstinences were secret diets. <laughs> and I didn't use the word diet because I heard that this is not a diet club. <laughs> so I was cleverly not to use those words we're not supposed to use, but it was secretly a diet. It was for the purpose of losing weight and then being Ms. Perfect. And I wanted everybody to point at me, there's Ms. O.A., and I really admire her. She had a great program. <laughs> and um, so I discovered uh, I've been absent 26 years. And... Um, okay. It took me a long time to get that. And I don't know why I'm absent for such a long period, because the second longest time I was absent was 27 days. And um, I started feeling really miserable, and I realized when I was in OA for like two years, um, I, I was introduced to an AA meeting, because one of, and, cause I hung around members of OA who were also members of AA. And one of them was speaking at an AA meeting, and a few OA people went to hear her speak. And uh, I didn't know what AA was going to be like, but I knew it was the, the origin of the species. Everything sprung from AA. And um, when I got there, I, I thought it would be eight men in trench coats in a room with a bare light bulb. <laughs> that was AA. But when I got there, it was this enormous speaker meeting, maybe twice the size of this meeting, with people who were, um, they were pretty, and they were like, to me, they were hip slick and cool. And I was just dazzled by how uh, hip slick and cool they were. 
And we got there during the break, and there was uh, an energy in the air. I could just feel it on my face. It was so exciting being there. And I started to go to AA meetings because it was so much more exciting than OA meetings. And I had no recovery in OA, but and I didn't even get that AA was a program of recovery. That's how much I wasn't getting the program. To me, it was a, it was like going to the theater. There'd be this tragic story, <laughs> and then what happened, and this happy ending, and everyone would applaud, and I just loved it. And I kept seeing this one particular guy at the AA meetings I went to, and they were all big speaker meetings. And we struck up a relationship, which is mission accomplished. (laughs) And for those of you who may know my husband, it's not him. It's someone else. (laughs) And um, so people kept, uh, and then when I went to an AA meeting with him, it was like uh, my credentials were I'm with him. Like that was why I was there. I'm with him. And I didn't have an identity of my own. I was with him. And AA meetings were, besides being the theater, it was a place to be seen with your date. I mean, that is the level I was at. And some people would recommend this other 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And I wasn't interested, but I went eventually, and I hit a bottom. And bottom for me is not what gets you to the program, but it's what makes you become willing and teachable. And I started to change and Um, take orders, take directions, and take action. And one of the biggest biggest differences is that um, the lessening of my shyness. I was debilitatingly shy. Um, I I could barely lead a meeting that the leader shared for three minutes. I would drop out of a class and do an oral book report. I would take an F if if an oral presentation was involved. So every time I lead a meeting or share, I know I've already changed because I know three minutes has passed already and I'm still talking. So um, I was at the other 12-step program and barely coming to OA because I had no success in OA. I just, 27 days was max. And I came back to OA about 27 years ago and uh, I had gone to a commercial weight loss program and it was a program that you weighed and measured and uh, at that point, they didn't use points, which they do now. But at that time, you had to get X number of bread and get the liver in there. And I mean, you had all this big formula. And I did it, and it was wonderful. And I had um, my history was diet, two days average, three days max. And I was on this weight and measured diet for four months. And suddenly, I couldn't do it one day at a time. I would wake up in the morning have every intention of doing this weigh and measure thing, and I'd eat all my bread allotments before lunch. Then I had to have lunch. Then I had to have snacks. Then I had to have dinner. And just before I recovery, I had approximately three dinners in one night, maybe three times a week. I would go home from work. I would put three frozen dinners in the oven, take a shower, put on a clean flannel nightgown, and eat all three frozen dinners. Then maybe an hour or two later, I'd have several sandwiches composed of white bread, room temperature butter um, spread on the bread with sugar sprinkled on the sandwiches with the crust cut off. (laughs) Several of those. And then maybe before bedtime, I'd have a snack of a can of fruit cocktail or a can of peaches or a can of pears and a boiled bag of cream spinach. 
because I liked it. And I would consider those to be three dinners. And I, it wasn't, uh, I knew it was a big eating night, but it wasn't an unusual eating night. Um, so anyway, I came to OA and uh, back to OA more consistently, having had five years of recovery in another 12-step program. Um, and then I couldn't do this program. Before, I kind of did it in like half-assed way, but I did it in some way. And I was, the OA literature hadn't been written. We had pamphlets, but no OA Brown book or no 12 and 12. So we used AA literature. And um, they would say, chapter three would be like, they would read chapter three in many meetings. Uh, if, you, if you can eat like a gentleman, we take our hats off to you. And I, get, I really get pissed off. Because you don't eat like a gentleman, you eat like a lady, and they translate it wrong. And how can you understand this? And they would, and then, the, so I would get really angry with that, and I couldn't, and also I relate very strongly with being a non-alcoholic because of my other 12-step program. And then I knew I had to find some way to uh, work this program because I had lost the weight on the commercial weight loss program. I couldn't do it anymore, and I didn't want to gain all the weight back. So I came here. And I knew I had to work the steps, and that's when I discovered that I couldn't do step one. I'm powerless over food, and my life has become unmanageable. Because I honestly didn't believe I was powerless over food. I thought, you just believed your, your you just had to say that so you can work 12 steps. But not that you really believed it. How can you believe you're powerless over food? Um, and I had to write about it, and what came up in my writing is that there's a reason why I couldn't be powerless over food. And that reason was that I was using my personal power to hold my weight down. I didn't weigh, want to weigh the, pound, the poundage that frightened me the most, which is 200 pounds. I didn't want to weigh 200 pounds. So I was using my personal power to tap the weight down, you know, to, to hold it at that. And that needed power. But you were saying I had to be powerless over food. In other words, I had to weigh 200 pounds. But if I didn't do the 12 steps, and I would, if I weren't powerless over food, which is step one, then I um, would never recover. So it's a catch-22. Be powerless and weigh 200 pounds, or don't be powerless and recover. I mean, be powerless and recover. And so this is the way I, so I knew I had done that step before, and the way I did it was that I was told that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was like for me asking a tubercular not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what his disease made him do. If he had said, I'm never going to cough again, I'm going to work 12 steps, and I will never cough again, he is saying two things by that statement. He is saying, I don't have a real disease, and I have power over a cough. Well, I know TB is a real disease, and I know you're totally powerless over coughing. So that's what I had to do. I had to translate that into my compulsive overeating. I had to say it was perfectly okay for me to overeat and binge because that was the only way I could be powerless over food. I tried being powerless different ways. I tried writing about it. I tried thinking about it. I tried talking about it. And all of that stayed in my head. But to get the powerlessness in my gut, I had to be, it had to be okay to binge because if I'm truly powerless, it's certainly okay. Otherwise, I would have said that I have to have control. 
well, if I'm powerless over binging, then how can anybody get recovery? So I read that dreaded AA literature, and in step one, what came up to me is that when you're powerless, then you have to take certain actions. And so if I want to binge, I don't want to be interrupted. I might... <laughs> I might tell you afterwards, but not, you know, I don't want to be interrupted. I'm not telling anybody until after. And um, one thing about being powerless I've discovered, that when you are powerless, truly powerless in your gut that you believe that, you are also blameless. Because somebody who coughs would cough and say, I shouldn't have coughed, I should have held that cough in, you know that's not possible and that's not even reasonable. So I had to be truly powerless and not blame myself. And really, truly, I had to act as if because I felt like I was cheating. But I had to act as if because I knew something in me that had to be truly powerless in my gut. So one day I was abstinent about three months, which is the longest I've ever been absent in my entire life because the second longest time was 27 days. And so I suddenly... It was meals at meal time with life in between. And the very first thing I ever did in abstinence, even though I, I described how I could eat, I can definitely eat, was that I realized when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls, and it made me feel bad. I made that connection. Too many rolls made me feel bad. So this is the very first thing I did in recovery, my guideline. When I'm in a restaurant, if there are rolls, I'll have one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And I put it that way because what I'd been doing, I would take the roll, unwrap the butter, use the butter on the roll, but there'd be a smidgen of butter left. I'd have to take the second roll to use up that butter, but it wouldn't be. <laughs> but there wasn't enough butter for the second roll, so I had to open the second butter. And then I'd eat the second roll, then there'd be a smidgen of second butter left, so I have to take a third roll to use up the second butter. And it would escalate like that. So I said one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which one's out first. And I didn't, and then I ate every last thing they served me. I could even eat the decorative lettuce. <laughs> it was mine. It, they served it to me. I ordered that. that. That wasn't for the person sitting next to me. That was mine. So I knew that wasn't small eating, and it definitely wasn't a diet. But, you know, I started to lose weight in spite of myself. I must have been eating a hell of a lot. So one restaurant had three different kinds of rolls in that basket. So there was that big debate. Should I take all three rolls or one that looks best? And, and I just simply knew that it, to feel deprived would just be a bad thing for me. So I had one of each kind of roll and they all shared the same pat of butter. <laughs> and I felt abstinent. So here I was, three months, it was, it was pounds rolling off, I was feeling like Mizoe, taking chips, and suddenly I had to binge. And I don't know why I had to binge, I just had to binge. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, my husband was out, I was by myself. Perfect time. So I thought, just for the hell of it, I'll call someone, and then I'll binge, because it's okay for me to binge. I'm powerless. And um, somebody had handed her phone number at a meeting. Somebody I didn't know, so I called her, because I didn't know her. 
So I called her and I said, hi, I'm, this is Nanette. You gave me your number at X meeting and I want to binge. And she said, you must really want to recover because you called me. And until she said that, I didn't know that. I didn't know I really wanted to recover. And I thought I was going to be bad and then tell somebody how bad I was going to be. But when she told me I want to recover, I felt better. But that doesn't mean I wasn't going to binge. That was still going to happen. <laughs> and then she said, uh, when would you like to start binging? <laughs> I mean, she didn't say what's going on, what's your motivation. What's, when? No, when would you like to? And I thought, oh, this is easier than I thought. <laughs> So I said, six o'clock, because I thought it looked more like dinner, because I was doing meals at mealtime with life in between. And she said, don't binge. She said, can you wait until six? I said, yes. She said, don't binge until six. I said, okay. And that was like a 30-second phone call. I made my phone call. I just had to hold off on my binging until six. So then I had time to kill. So I went and fixed my bed and I did the dishes in the sink and then I grabbed the TV guide and I channeled Hopper a few minutes and suddenly my eyes hit the clock. It was 6.15. I'd been channel hopping. It was 15 minutes past my binge start and I hadn't started. I could have been binging for 15 minutes freely and I hadn't. And suddenly I didn't want to binge because I could have been doing for 15 whole minutes and I didn't. So I made a dinner, which is a little hill on a plate. <laughs> and I ate the entire hill. But you know, the meal stopped at the edge of the plate. It didn't travel onto the kitchen. And so I subscribe to the notion that the miracle for us isn't that we eat three times a day, it's that we stop three times a day. And that was another day of abstinence. Um... I'll just share, uh, oh, I don't know what to share. Okay, when I was one and a half years old, I got polio, and it affected my right leg from my, the hip down. It made my right hip really, my right leg really weak. It's smaller, it's shorter than my left leg. And even when I'm standing here now, I'm only standing on the left side, because I cannot stand on my right side. And when I used the crutch, I, I was telling somebody, that my left arm, which is where I use the crutch to work, one crutch, and um, it's an arm disguise, it's a leg disguised as an arm, and the crutch part is the peg, like a peg leg, and so I really am all on the left side and not on the right. So you might see me scooting around here in the convention, which is a rental. <laughs> I love it. Um, so. When I was growing up, I was, I was compared to somebody who had polio, Johnny Weissmuller. Johnny Weissmuller was an Olympic swimming diving champion, gold medalist, and he was supposed to have polio, and he uh, worked his you know, muscle building swimming, and he became an Olympic swimming champion. And I was compared to him, like, why can't you be like Johnny Weissmuller from a member of my family who would say that? And I would, and Johnny, and I couldn't, I didn't. I had polio when I was one and a half. I did whatever they instructed, and the recovery is as it is. So I thought he was my secret enemy. <laughs> and every time somebody, I saw the Tarzan movies and he swung from trees, it was my secret enemy all the time. And then when I was a year abstinent, he died. 
And then there was an obit. It wasn't even in the obit section. It was on the front page of the L.A. Times. And it said that he was never sick a day in his life, that when he started making Tarzan movies, they made up this thing about his having polio. And it wasn't true. And so here, my whole life, my real recovery from polio, whatever it was, was compared to a figment of someone's imagination. It was somebody's myth that I was comparing my real life to, uh, a fantasy of somebody's. And at first I thought, oh, this is ironic. But it didn't really strike me until I started doing my second inventory. And what it was is that Johnny Weissmiller did did not have polio, and he didn't have recovery from polio. So he had no recovery to share with me. And so I'm comparing my real life to a figment of someone's imagination. What a waste of life. And so I was wasting my life comparing. I'm sure there are hundreds of those examples, but this one I found the truth to. So I'm really, really for telling the truth at meetings. Don't tell a lie. You don't try to look good. You tell what's going on because you don't want somebody to compare their insides to your outsides and come up short and like, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing it right. So you always tell the truth. And I don't believe in meetings that say, share happy, positive pitches, unless you're in a happy, positive place. But not just because the meeting instructs you to do that, because I've been to such meetings. Always tell the truth. I do this prayer before I lead a meeting, and it goes like this. Dear God, please give me the willingness to tell the truth and the courage to be who I am, because that's who you made. And that enables this very shy, debilitatingly shy person to share. My time is almost up, so I'm going to share one more thing. Um, uh, I'll share two more things, and then I'll I'll stop. Um, One is, I was watching TV a few years ago, and there was this exercise guru. And I really don't exercise, but I was watching this get whatever hints I could of being healthier. And in the Q&A section, somebody asked him, what is the best exercise? And he said, the one you'll do. (laughs) And that goes for abstinence too. The one you'll do is the best one for you. I can't, you know, I got abstinence before I got a sponsor, and I did that on purpose because I didn't want to do what the sponsor wanted me to do because it would be artificial. It had to be organic coming from me. It had to be something I could do until I was 90. I'm doing what I can do until I'm 90. And to have somebody tell me what to eat, then if I'm angry with them, what happens? I go, you know, fuck you and not eat the way they want me to eat. Um, So that's one thing I wanted to share. And um, the other thing is how I envision my recovery. I see my recovery like a forest. And the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. And there are enough trees in the forest to make the forest a forest. Some of these trees are like Christmas trees, and they're sequoias, and they're oaks, and they're just wonderful trees. And some of these trees are dead. They're like tree stumps, like lightning hit it. It's not growing anymore. Maggots crawling through them. And if you hike over there, you'll see a grove of tree stumps. But if I only look at the trees, I'm going to miss the rest of what's in my forest because there are more there than trees. There are grass and poppies and clover and lakes and, and streams and blue jays and, um, 
everything's there. And if a force is God-given and God-made, which I believe it is, and if I'm to believe my recovery is God-given and God-made, then I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. I can't see a tree stump and say, oh my God, there's a tree stump here, let's trash this forest and go on to the fresh one. Because it's supposed to be there, even if I don't think it's beautiful enough to be in the forest. So that's what I do. I have to accept everything that's there. And if sometimes I think I eat too much, and I think that maybe I've broken my abstinence even, I don't make a decision of whether I have or haven't broken my abstinence for three to six months. And in three to six months, I can look back and change my date if I want to. But just in case I haven't, I have to keep on keeping on until the three to six months. And then I look, and that's why I have 26 years. I have some 26 years of tainted abstinence. That's the way I can do it. That's the way I can live with it. And that's what my recovery is like. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nanette. Um, okay, now it says we'll now have 10 minutes of questions from the Ask a Basket. Um, if there's not enough questions in the Ask a Basket, uh, the speakers can be given a second chance to say whatever they meant or what they left out. Okay. Okay, this isn't addressed to anybody in particular. It says, Please share your method of meditation and connecting with higher power. Okay, after I give that little lecture about truth, I don't meditate. <laughs> I've tried, but when I try to do that, I just fall asleep. <laughs> And it really doesn't work for me. And usually when I pray, although it talks about meditation, that prayer, I often pray in the car as I'm driving. So just to let you know, that's how I do it. Um, my method of meditation, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to do this, you know. Um, sometimes I use breathing, okay. Sometimes I read uh, over a morning meditation book and um, most of the time it has to do with sitting straight in a chair, arms relaxed, quiet place, and focusing on uh, a word or a phrase that's helpful. And um, if you want to know more about that, uh, meet me after the meeting. There's a bunch of them here for anybody, and then I'm going to answer the one that was to me. And Yeah. Okay. Um, my mom had Alzheimer's too, but was in a home. I still feel guilty for not visiting her more. I couldn't handle seeing her. She's now passed. How'd you do it? Um, a day at a time and a minute at a time, and I absolutely don't recommend what we did to anybody. I think it's do what you can do for you. Okay. And there's never enough visits. There's never, you know, I mean, she was there in our house, and I still felt guilty when she passed. I mean, you know, it, 
I can understand not being able to handle seeing someone. It's extremely, extremely painful. And therefore, uh, my the only suggestion I would make would be to um, try doing some writing on forgiveness for yourself. Your mom is fine. Okay? Your mom is fine. And my, that's my understanding is that, you know, we... We all have have strengths and weaknesses and gifts and talents, and it just depends on the day. So, you know, I would just say, please, you know, please, put down the club and and pick up the pen, okay? And just know that, you know... We all do what we can do, and the fact that you're still here and that you're still in program is huge. Okay? Thanks. Okay, this one's addressed to me. What is your food plan? It started out as meals at mealtime with life in between, and life in between includes popcorn at the movies, and um, so that's it, because all the other stuff besides the weight measure, commercial weight loss, I, mean, I tried things like I made up myself, the, the U.S. ski team diet, I tried that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's evolved. Uh, in the beginning, uh, I'll just share my pizza story. It's like in the beginning, I know that if you're in recovery, you have to eat differently than when you're in practicing. But I wasn't willing to give up pizza, and I wasn't willing to give up a lot of pizza. So my husband and I usually had pizza once or twice a month, and we'd order a large pizza with everything on it except anchovies. And he'd have his half, and I'd have my half with a diet squirt. (laughs) And I just knew you had to eat differently if you're calling yourself in recovery. So I was willing to give up one slice. I had one slice less than a half. And so for the first two years of recovery, I had, every time we had pizza, I had one slice less than a half and claimed the recovery that was there in my willingness to give up that one slice. He can have that one slice and go down the garbage disposal, could be part of my lunch the next day, whatever. And then something interesting happened the third year. I suddenly was able to have one slice more than a fourth. And sometimes one slice more than a fourth was the same as one slice less than a half, (laughs) depending on how they cut it, you know. But every now and then it was less. And the whole third year, that's how much pizza I ate, although I allowed myself one slice less than a half. And then the fourth year, I I stopped at a fourth. I don't know why I did that. I just didn't need, need more than a fourth of a pizza. And the fifth year, sometimes I had a fourth, sometimes I had one slice less than a half. And today, I usually have a vegetarian pizza with no cheese, and um, I usually have one slice less than a half. And I, I believe that I had to have as much pizza as I did that first two years in order for me to slip into another gear. And I had to claim the recovery Otherwise, if I kept saying I broke my absence, I broke my absence, 
If I didn't slip, I wouldn't have known that it took two years for me to slip into another year. And I, if I can share one more thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a pizza, a, a French fry addiction. And I'm a periodic with French fries. <laughs> I have French fries at one meal. And then the next day I have to, I seek out that French fry. And just like the crackers, I'd have to have it, I wanted to have it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I say I'm not having any today. And after I eat lunch, I seek it out and add it to my lunch or whatever, and pretty soon that's all I want to eat. And then this is the way I wean off French fries. I have hash browns or something, because I, I don't have an addiction to hash browns or, uh, or gratin potatoes, something. I just start weaning off, you know, as long as it's not French fries. And then finally, I got tired of that. After many years of recovery, I still have this periodic French fry addiction. And I finally shared it with my uh my sponsor, my current sponsor, and I got my current sponsor when I, just a little before I turned 20, <laughs> so it was a long time I've had that French fry addiction, and she said something brilliant, she said, I think you need a French fry day, and I was so happy, that I, <laughs> I thought I had to quit it, but no, once a month I have a French fry day, I can eat French fries morning, noon, and night, as much as I want, as often as I want for that one day, for that one month. And if I, if I don't do my French fry day on that month, it doesn't roll over to the next month. <laughs> the next month, I have a fresh French fry day. And so I did it for about two years. And suddenly, maybe it's two years, suddenly there were a number of months I totally missed it, but didn't miss it. Because when I was doing the French Friday, I would have it at near the last of the, the month. So that I had the fresh, so if, in case I need another one, it would be right there in the, the new month. <laughs> but sometimes I still have a French Friday, and sometimes it totally passes, and I just don't want to do it. So I don't, you know, you don't know these until you, you claim what you can do and appreciate that you could have done it in the first place. Thank you. I'm impressed. Okay. Um, for either or both, how do you keep your food in order when emotionally disturbed? Well, I am emotionally disturbed, so. That's, you know, it's like, yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, yeah, and like Inez said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I made that clear that my food started at three troughs a day with nothing in between. That it has not been... It was, I could have used a rubber room getting off sugar. And it has been a slow, gradual process. And there have been times when, you know, my weight just wasn't where I wanted it to be. It wasn't going down. It wasn't doing nothing. I was struggling with the food. And I just, my prayer to God was, higher power, instead of me telling you what I should weigh, help me weigh what you know I'll weigh to be happy. Because I have no idea what happiness is, what it looks like, what's good for me. And so I let my higher power pick. And I didn't like his choices in the beginning. And then uh, gradually over time, I am just now at age, at 23 years of abstinence at a weight I feel like, okay. Okay. You know, I don't, 
I don't go like this when I look in the mirror. Now, I don't know I do what I look like, but I'm okay, you know. And my goal weight is no longer my birth weight. It's just, you know, this is okay. If this goes up, it's all about, then I come to acceptance with that because I'm doing what I can do. But I really think this thing takes a long time. I really do. I don't think it's an overnight deal. Anyway, how do you um, keep an emotional disturbance? I can't add too much more to what I said other than if I'm emotionally disturbed and the way I know is when I'm hungry or when I'm wanting to eat more. Um, When I'm emotionally disturbed, my sponsor told me that what goes on in my life should not affect what I put in my mouth. She said Sometimes. Okay, thanks. Sorry, folks. For those people who are finding maintenance challenging and fear of asking a sponsor and shopping for one, I thought that's what Trader Joe's was for. But anyway, um, you know, if you have questions, just ask us after the meeting. Okay, we now want to give time for people to share. Um, We will have time for three-minute shares. If you have already shared another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward. Limit your share to three minutes. Stay on the topic and sign the tape release form, which is sitting right here at the top after you share. Anybody's welcome to come up. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm a grateful recovering compulsive overeater. And I have a lot of gratitude to Nanette. Because when I first came into program, I heard you talking about abstinence, but I had no idea what you were talking about. And for the first, I don't know, I would say for the first eight months, I was just really confused. And um, I didn't have a sponsor. I was just going to meetings and doing, that's all I could do at the time. And I reached out to Nanette. And I said, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing with food. Um, And she said to me, well, you know, can you do three meals a day? Because I'm a grazer. I will eat little, I will slice and sliver my way up to, my top weight's a little over 200 pounds. Um, And she said, you know, well, can you do three meals a day? What can you do? And um, so I was willing to try that. I had never actually gone from one meal to the next without eating, like nibbling on something for a little anxiety here, a little sadness here, a little frustration here, a little, it's almost like I would just, it was a habit I had to just put stuff in my mouth when I wasn't okay. And the beauty of that was that that's how I made a beginning. Some of the meals were really big, really big. Um, But I made a beginning on that. And, And also... I have so much gratitude for that woman, I can't even tell you. Um, There have been many times where I thought, you know, that was not, that was, that was not, that was not, that was way off the mark. But because I heard Nanette share that don't make a decision on that, 
you know, you tomorrow morning you'll wake up abstinently. Violet had said that to me, and I go to the 100-pounders meeting in Westchester. That's where I met all of these fabulous long-timers that I have so much gratitude for. Um, she said, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up abstinent. All you have to do is keep it. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to just, okay. So that was a stump lightning rod hit tree day that I had. And I'm just going to move on. And today I have a little over three years and I've got sponsees that, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, sometimes they're the ones keeping me afloat. I'm so grateful for them. And so Wherever you are, it's your journey, and it's absolutely perfect where you are. And so just keep coming back. You know, you you learn it when you learn it, when you're ready to learn it. And um, just keep an open mind and an open heart and know that we'll love you until you can love yourself. Thanks. Would, um, let's see. Somebody be willing to timeshare? Yeah, come on up. Somebody willing to Somebody willing to timeshare? Okay. I'll do it. Hi, everybody. My name is Vicki. I'm a compulsive overeater. And, uh, there you are. Thank you for your French fry story. I shared it in another meeting that that was like my F word was French fries. And I've never heard anybody say the minute I have them, I want to eat them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's just true. And that happens with like no other food. And I have a funny story to tell you about blueberry scones, the ones at Starbucks. And, it was actually somebody in OA who I was at Starbucks with, and she said, you can have one of those. There's not a lot of sugar in it. It won't hurt you. <laughs> Turned out that it became like the bane of my existence. And I wanted to have a, you know, venti, soy latte, and the scone like four times a day. And I was talking to my sponsor about it. She says, okay, you got to put some brakes on it somehow. How are you going to do it? And at the time, I just wasn't willing to break up, you know, so not with my sponsor with the blueberry scone. I wasn't willing. So I talked to my therapist about it, and she says, look, you can only have one a week. So I said, okay, and then I went along my merry way, and I had one, and then my my diseased brain started working, and I figured out that I could have more than one in a week if I just changed the day of the week that I had them. (laughs) Well, right, Lonnie? Well, before long, I was starting a new week every day. (laughs) So I went back to therapy the next week. I'm like, that didn't work. And she says, what happened? And I told her, she's like, okay, smart Alec, you can only have them on Saturdays, whatever day she said. And I said, well, what happens if I'm busy on Saturday and I don't get to have it on Sunday? And she said, too effing bad. And I'd never heard her say the F word before in therapy, so I figured I'd better listen to that because she doesn't just throw that F bomb around for nothing. And um, eventually, we just had to break up. It was, just, it was not something I could do once a week. And um, I think in the first couple weeks after I stopped eating them, I went up to Serenity Sunday and I shared at the meeting and I told it, I told a story and... I mean, I, you know, it's been a long time now since we've broken up. But, you know, right after you break up with someone or something, you have to, like, talk about it all the time. Well, boy, did I, did I describe those blueberry scones in great detail. I thought I'm never going to be welcome back here. 
And for like a year, whenever somebody from uh, Serenity Study would come down to Orange County, they'd say, I remember you, you don't want the blueberry scones. I'm like, oh, what a reputation. So thank you for sharing about that. It gave me courage to come up here and talk about that. And even though it's been like five years since I've done that, it could be this afternoon. You know, it could be tomorrow. But for today, I woke up. I wasn't eating one when I woke up. And I'm just not going to do it for the rest of the day. So thanks for whoever said that. Very compulsive overreader. Hey. Hi, everybody, and uh, thank you both for your what you had to say. Um, starting to kick in. I'm starting to feel like I'm here now. I got here uh, last well yesterday afternoon, and uh, I just didn't feel a part of until I heard about all these stories of food. I guess I knew I was in the right place, but uh, I don't have any great food stories, but. What I do have is a great story of uh, determination to to want to feel better about myself. And uh, when I, I came into OA in uh, August of 1972, and uh, some of you know Phyllis in San Diego, and uh, she was at my very first meeting. And uh, this was back in Long Island, New York, in Mineola, Long Island. Phyllis uh, lived in New York prior to moving out here, and then many years later I, I moved out to Santa Barbara, not knowing that uh, Phyllis was out here. But in any event, uh, getting the food in order was not really going on that gray sheet. That, to me, was not getting my food in order. For me, that was about losing weight, and it did. It, it, it really did work. I, I went from uh, well over 300, almost 400 pounds, down to 165 pounds. Well, I don't know if that deserves a hand or not, but uh, I gained it back too, you know, because uh, I I wasn't listening to everything that you know this Westminster group was about. It wasn't all about dieting; it was about starvation. <laughs> it was about deprivation. So, I mean, it worked as far as weight loss went, and uh, but it wasn't really about getting the food in order, but. What got the food in order finally was, you know, when I did gain the weight back, and uh, you know, I, I took other measures. I uh, I wound up uh, having a, a gastric bypass about uh, oh, 13, 14 years ago when it wasn't very popular. And um, I haven't mentioned this too much because this is an outside issue. But what I do want to say is that that's not the way of getting the food in order either. You know, they could, uh, I, uh, my trademark, I say, is they, they put a staple in my stomach, but they didn't staple my head, you know. And I think it's necessary for people that have medical issues, not uh, for somebody who just wants to lose a few pounds. So I don't advocate this at all. And uh, I normally don't bring it up. Um, I don't even know why it's coming out. But to me, when you see that I, you know, I'm not 400 pounds, you say, wow, he really stuck to his food product program. You know, you can gain the weight back with these things. You know, I know friends that uh, have had the gastric bypass and are doing worse. And the only thing that's ever worked for me was the consistency and the determination to keep coming back to OA no matter what. No matter what's happening. 
And it's very easy to come back with back-to-back and front-to-front and side-to-side abstinence. You know? <laughs> and whether it be a gray sheet or a blue sheet or who gives a sheet, it doesn't really... <laughs> It doesn't really matter what color you're on, you know, uh, uh, what color sheet it is. It's like, where's the head? Where, where's the honesty? Where, where's the, uh, where's the spirituality? The spirituality. And, but that take comes later on, you know. It's like, after 37 years, I can get a little fancy now and say that's more about the spirituality and the emotions, which we know it is after a while. But in the beginning, getting the food in order is not a diet, no way. Getting the food in order to me is working the, the steps, but not just the steps, the more so the tools. If we're willing to go to any length, then we're ready to take certain steps. To me, is step zero of the tools. So getting the food in order, what a way. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. If you didn't uh, sign up here, if you would, after the meeting, that would be great. And you shared. Um, it's now time to close the workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence, uh, followed by the serenity prayer. No. Let's put my hand in yours. Thanks. Okay. We're going to do I put my hand in yours. Okay. That's all. Uh, what's easiest? Just stand and hold hands with the person next to you. All right. We're all going to form a large intestine now. Uh, hold, hold hands person next to you.